morning. Great to see you today. So today we're talking about envy. Uh, the title of the message is uh, Rivalry in Relationships and How to Reduce That Rivalry That Can Exist in Relationships. Uh, as Derek already said, I think that uh, U2 song, it, that could be written by King Solomon in Ecclesiastes if you ever spent time writing that or reading that. Uh, here you got a guy who had everything, absolutely everything, and yet uh, he considered things so meaningless in life. All right, what I'd like to do for just a few moments is just a really quick review. So if you didn't happen to get a bulletin, it's going to be what you're going to see is right on behind me. If you did get a bulletin and you want to fill in a couple of these little blanks here, it might be helpful because the foundation to this, this 15-point plan to having a great relationship is very, very important. So uh, just three things really quick as way of review. Love is a determined act of the will. It's not a feeling. This is very important. The dictionary defines it as a good feeling. But God's dictionary, the Bible, defines it as a determined act of the will. Last week, we talked about patience, that love is patient. And the word patient means, literally means, to be long-tempered. So, you know, how many of us that when we have to show patience are getting a good feeling all over our bodies? Right. So when you're waiting for something that you really want, that you, you get tingly all over your body. No, I get, you know, most people like feel like they're going to explode. It's a bad feeling. That's why it's not a feeling. It's a determined act of the will. Love is a determined act of the will, not a feeling. Second thing is the blame game is both natural and it's powerless. Adam and Eve. So God says, Adam, Eve, you know, what happened here? And they both just started pointing fingers. Well, you know, Adam says, it's her. She did it. And Eve says, well, God, it's it's you and it's the serpent that you made. And just because the serpent didn't have fingers is the only reason he couldn't point at somebody. Right. So it's very natural to us when we get in a conflict over relationship. Very natural is us to start going like this. And this might be a very powerful dance move. Right. I'm a very good dancer. My very powerful dance move, but it is powerless and it's terrible relationally. Why is it powerless relationally? Because we can't control anybody else. All the power is right here because we can 100% control our decisions and our reactions to what we do. It's very important. Last thing. Our core fears drive us relationally. This is so important. We spent the end, the very end of last week's message going over the fact that we need to figure out what our core fears are. It's really important. So um, a lot of people asked me last week, they said, did Krista really say to you, you're fat? People want to know, did she really say that to you? Just boom, right out there. And so the answer to that is yes. I was not joking around. That's what my wife said. A lot of people ask Krista the same thing, yet the answer is yes. Here's, that's, what, here, that's what happened. All right. But there's actually even more to the story, which I did not tell you last week. I'll tell you the rest of the story now. A few days after that happened, she looked at me out of the blue again. She said, you look terrible. <laughs> look terrible. And then she said it to me a few hours later in that same day again. She said, you look terrible. And she followed up and said, you look stressed. You look tired, look worn, like your blood pressure is, is rising. Now, listen, here's why core fears, everybody, is so critical. And we are at such a major disadvantage if we don't understand what our core fears are. My core fear, that didn't trigger my core fear. If it did, we probably would have an unproductive conversation, and my logic behind all that would have been totally off, right? If it didn't, I was able to back up and think about it logically. 
what was happening inside of her. It triggered her core fear. For many women, their core fear has something to do with relationships. It has something to do with connection. Men, it usually has things to do with control or success. But many women, theirs is about a core fear connected somehow to relationship. What was she saying? What Krista was saying to me, she said, John, I love you. I care about you. And I don't want to be without you. Please slow your life down and take care of yourself. Now, all that came out is you're fat, <laughs> right? Right? And so, so what happens? What happens in our relationships? We say stuff to each other all the time. It's not the words we say. It's what's driving behind it. If you have no idea what your core fear is, if you don't know what the core fears of people who are really close to you, you're clueless. I would have been clueless to this years ago. I would have no idea. Now I am. And now instead of me being angry at that statement, what, what would I be? I could look deeper and be loved by that statement that is how powerful it is to figure out what your core fears are you must do that and that was in last week's message so i encourage you if you want to know more about that to review last week's message it's online on our on our, on our website all right let's jump into envy because this is a big it said in first corinthians thirteen four that love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not envy envy is very common and it is very very dangerous it's extremely common in our world and in our lives, and it's extremely dangerous. It's not something to be played with because it steals our joy. So let's pause for a second, and let's pray. Just ask God to help us. Lord, uh, I, I'm just so thankful, uh, Jesus, you said that you have come to give us life and give us life to the full. And yet we, we are talking about this thing, envy today, which is so dangerous, and it robs us of life. It steals, steals from us. God, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully today through your word because we need help. I can imagine there's not a person in this room who's not touched with this whole idea today of envy, jealousy, what it robs of and how it brings discontentment. So, God, I pray that our hearts and our ears will be open to what you would say to us. Help us to learn and change. And God, give us the strength and the power to be transformed to be the people that you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, envy. It's the Greek word zelo, zelo, and it means zeal. The literal tra uh, translation of the word of this, to have a strong desire for. Now, zeal can be positive and negative. In this case, it's negative. To be envious of somebody else, to have a strong desire for something. There can be uh, envy, that is, you know, I wish I had what they have, and there could be envy, I wish they did not have what they have which is a little more sinister and wicked. And both of those can exist. Envy, you find it all throughout the Bible. It's as old as the Bible is. The parting shot of the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty seventeen says, Thou shalt not, what? Say it louder. Covet. Covet. It means to envy. It means to be jealous of something. You should not covet your neighbor's house, spouse, possessions. It spells it out really clearly in the Ten Commandments. It's the parting shot of the Ten Commandments. And this is as old as the Bible is. Adam and Eve, original sin. They wanted to be like who? God. They were jealous of God. They envied God, and it led to original sin. You don't go much farther than that. Genesis chapter 4. All that happens in chapter 3, now chapter 4. Second major problem, major sin that is listed there before us. What was it? Cain, jealous of his younger brother, Abel. So jealous, it drives him to murder his younger brother, Abel. It's terrible. 
envy, jealousy plays a prominent role in the lives of many of the main characters that we read about in the Bible. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Mary, Martha, Esther, over and over and over again. Envy plays a role in these people's lives and in their story that is listed for us in the Bible. It is very, very uh, pervasive. Jesus' parable, some of his famous parables, parable of the prodigal son, parable of the prodigal son is so much about envy and about jealousy, older brother, younger brother, what's going on there, or the parable of the, of the workers out in the vineyard and the, and the envy that they felt, the ones who were hired at the beginning of the day and those who were hired at the end of the day, and the envy and the jealousy that existed. It is all over the place. It's widespread, it's dangerous, it steals our joy. Proverbs says some powerful things about envy. It says that envy rots our bones. It says that who can survive jealousy? Now, we need to take notice of that. Who can survive it? So we think that somehow that maybe we're just going to go on with life and I'm having feelings of jealousy or envy about somebody else and somehow I'll be able to continue to stuff it and live my life and everything's going to be okay. Proverbs says, whoa, you better, better do something about this because who can survive it? Who can stand up before it? It will actually rot our bones. Socrates says this. Envy is the ulcer of the soul. It is the ulcer of the soul. Though Americans have so much, we are known as a discontented people. All around the world, we are known as a discontented people. Though we have so much, just like King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And we search because we're discontent and we're dissatisfied by so many things envy steals our joy for living envy says i cannot be happy until fill in the blank and then once that blank is filled in then it's something more and it's something more and it's something more and it just keeps robbing us of our joy as we start down the envy road our lives begin to fill up with regret as we start down this road called envy what happens is the farther we go down it the more the regrets begin to accumulate like a falling snow And it just piles up on us. I wish I'd have. I should have. I won't be happy until I have. And it's very, very miserable. Envy creates a world of dissatisfaction and discontentment in our lives over our money, our looks, our possessions, our relationships, our talents, and on and on and on it goes. Woody Allen said, and Woody Allen, though very, very successful, always struck me as a very miserable person. And this is what Woody Allen said. He says, my only regret in life is that I am not someone else. My only regret in life is that I'm not somebody else. Who can stand before envy? It rots our bones. Is there a cure for it? Yes, there is. There's the good news. The bad news is, is envy's terrible. The good news is the Bible gives us a cure for envy. And it tells us how we can find contentment and satisfaction in life. And basically the entire book of Philippians, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the Bible to the Philippians is all about finding contentment and satisfaction and running away from envy and jealousy and coveting, running away from all that and finding the cure for it, cure for it. Philippians, this is what Paul says in Philippians 4 verses 11 and 13. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. 
That's awesome. So what God is saying to us is there is an answer. You know, I bet almost every single one of us in this room, if not 100% of us, are touched at some level, you know, big, small, whatever, with this whole thing of envy and jealousy. I know I am. I know I have struggled with it in my own life. And I've been able to find ways through the Bible to find a cure for it. And it is so much more awesome to live in a state of contentment than it is to live in a state of discontentment. That's where we can go it can be done and we get so first thing i want to say to you there is hope Somebody saying man i'll never have hope i only have hope john until i get that thing that i'm looking for no no if paul can do it and if the bible says it it says that we can learn this so there is hope for every single one of us that we can find contentment now what sets up this whole section where paul says i've learned contentment well you know what he says he says it here in philippians 4 2 to set up this whole, to put it in context, this section, he says, I urge, and I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not totally sure how to say this name. Euodia and Syntyche to iron out their difference. So there was a rivalry going on between Euodia and Syntyche. They probably both wanted each other's names. They were frustrated, <laughs> jealous over each other's names, angry, both wanted, you know, that kind of thing. And so he's, get along. All right. I want to give you three things from the book of Philippians that we must have in order to find, to live out the cure for discontentment, all right? The first must is this. We must trust in God's providence. This is very important. We must trust in God's providence. God's providence, the word providence is an important theological word. It means to be under the care of God. Needs to be under the care of God. And Paul, as he starts the whole letter of Philippians out, there's only four chapters to it, powerful book. As he starts it out, he points them towards the providence of God. He says this, Philippians 1, 6, being confident, I'm confident, he tells them, the Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing, that he, God Almighty, who began a good work in you, will complete it. He will complete it. Some of us are here this morning say, oh my goodness. There's not a good work going on in my life. Or if there was a good work, somehow it got stopped. Somebody threw a wrench, you know, in the system somewhere along the way. And what God is saying to us by his providence is that he will complete it. What does God's providence mean? Paul begins this whole letter mapping this out. And what happens here is when somebody places their life in God's hands and they seek his will daily... They have put themselves under the care of God. They have placed themselves firmly into the providence of God. God's providence is not the same thing as God's will. Important distinction, okay? God's providence is not the same thing as God's will. Paul's life takes many twists and turns along the way. He writes this letter from a jail cell. He is in jail. He is imprisoned. He is in chains. How did he get there? He got there because he was lied about. He was falsely accused. And then a bunch of people came in who were lying about them and they whipped up an angry mob and the angry mob almost ripped Paul apart. He's thrown in prison. He sits in prison for a while and they're going to move him from one prison to another prison. And there's a whole group of people that so want him dead that they had planned this secret mission that they're going to kill him as he's moved from one prison. They said they are not going to eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. They were committed to killing him. 
Well, miraculously, he survives and he makes it all the way to Rome. Was that God's will? I mean, God is doing an incredible thing in Paul's life. Paul's encouraging people. He's preaching to people. He's teaching to people all along the way. But was it God's will for people to lie about Paul? Was it God's will for a murderous mob to come and try to rip him apart? No, that wasn't God's will. What is God's providence? God's providence is God's supernatural ability to weave together circumstances, events, people's decisions, forces of darkness that come against us. And God supernaturally weaves things together. Not all his will, but he's able to take a mess and make a masterpiece out of it. That, my friends, is the providence of God. And we need to understand that. Michelangelo's probably his most famous sculpting ever is of King David from the Bible. There was a big block of marble and it was they were somebody can use some artists. And so different artists were offered it. Finally, one artist says, I'll take that block of marble. Nobody really wanted it because it is a bad block of marble. We can't make anything good of it. One artist takes it. He starts on the work and he just gives up mysteriously. Doesn't want it. And the block of marble sits out in the workyard in a yard of this workshop for 25 years. Everybody, it sits out there in the elements, sun, rain, hot, cold, everything. Finally, some artists come along and say, well, let's do something with this marble. But nobody again wants it. But 26-year-old Michelangelo says, you know what? You all see a mess, but I see a masterpiece. And he goes to work on that. And four years later, here we have King David, the sculpture. And that thing sits in Florence today. And hundreds of thousands of people push on each other to get in to look at it 500 years later. Because Michelangelo saw in that a masterpiece where everybody else saw a mess. That, everybody, is the way God looks at us. You might look at your lives, and you might look at the life of somebody else, and that's an absolute mess. God can't even do anything with that. And God says, oh, yes, I can. Romans 8, 28, what does it say? It says this, we know that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. For those who have placed themselves in the providence of God, under the care of God, God says, I don't care how bad the situation is, I can make a masterpiece out of your life. We must trust in the providence of God. That's exactly why Paul was content in a prison cell because he believed that God was going to make a masterpiece out of a prison cell when he couldn't see any other way. He had to trust in it. How about Joseph? Joseph was loved by his father and hated by his 10 older brothers. Hated. They hated the kid. They beat him up and threw him down a pit. And as they ate a meal, thoughts of murdering him danced through their heads. They decide not to murder him. Instead, they say, let's torture him. Why should we just kill him and it be over with so quickly? Let's make his agony last his entire lifetime. And they sell him into slavery. He goes, lives as a slave. about bad enough. He's been a slave for a couple years. He's falsely accused and he's lied about. And now he goes from being a slave in someone's house to being a slave in a prison cell. He's there for a couple years in the prison cell as a slave. Two of the king's men are sent down to spend some time in the jail cell. Because they needed to think about some things. So while they're there thinking about some things, they both have a dream. Joseph interprets the dream. One interpretation was very good. One interpretation was very bad. One guy died. One guy was put back in his position. Last words Joseph says to the guy who went back to his position is, listen, you've got to remember me. You've got to remember me. I'm here. I've been falsely accused. You've got to remember me. Do not forget me and get me out of this. And so what does the guy do? Boom, forgets about him for the next two years. You're talking about misery. You're talking about a mess. His life is a mess. His brothers hate him, everybody. Do we think for a second that this is the will of God that his brothers hate him? 
Do we think for a second that God is willing and wanting his brothers to beat him up and to sell him into slavery and for him to be falsely accused over and over? His life is an absolute mess. And God says through his providence and his power, I can make a masterpiece out of this mess. God takes into account the circumstances of our lives. And when we place our lives under the care of God, God says, you know what? I can do something great with that. And that's why Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, these words, he says, God turned, he's speaking to his brothers who did these evil things against him. God turned your evil into good to save the lives of many people. If you have never placed your life in the providence of God, if you have never placed your life under God's care so that God can take your life and make a masterpiece, I encourage you. I encourage you with everything in me. Please consider doing that today. It doesn't matter what situation you're in or what you're facing or how messy it might be. God says it doesn't matter how dark the day is for you that God can make a masterpiece out of your mess because God loves you. After the service, our prayer team is right over here. They would love to pray with you. And I know some of us in this room, we're facing some hopeless situations. We're facing some situations. We're wondering, can God even do anything with it? And what God would say to us today from his word is, yes, I can. Yes, I can. We must trust in the providence of God in order to find contentment. Second thing is this. We must stop complaining. We must stop complaining. Now, (laughs) you might say, okay. That's a challenge. How is that going to happen? Well, if Paul could do it, we could do it. If he could learn contentment and not complain in a jail cell, I'm sure that somehow, some way, miraculously, God could help us to do the same thing. Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining. Our words, everybody, here's what you got to hear. Our words coming out of our mouth of complaint feeds the monster of discontent that's inside of all of us. Feed, you got to starve that monster. You got to starve that monster out. We think sometimes, oh, well, it's no big deal. I just complain. It's, no th- it's not really having any kind of big deal. It's okay. It's, no, no, no. The words that we speak out of our mouth of complaint is feeding the monster of discontent inside of us. Here's this week's assignment. Remember last week? What was last? Anybody remember last week's assignment? Yes. Let, other go, let others go first. How'd that go? <laughs> How did that go? Did that go well? I had somebody say to me, I, I, I saw somebody uh, that was here last Sunday. I saw him throughout this week, this past week. And they said, you know that there is a, uh, there's a traffic jam at Old Glebe Road and 2nd Street after the 11 o'clock service? I said, I had, you know, I had no idea. I usually don't leave here at about 1 o'clock. No idea. I said, yeah, it's pretty bad. So when you said last week, let others go first, the first thing I'm thinking is, what's going to happen down there? Are people actually going to do that? Am I going to be able to do that? And he said, you know, I was, I was kind of tensed up about the whole thing. I said, well, what happened? So I pulled out of the parking lot. I went right and avoided the whole mess altogether. I, just, I was afraid of maybe what would take place if I, uh, if I went that way. So this week's assignment is say no to complaining. Say no to it. Starve that monster of discontent inside of you and just say no. There is a very strong connection in the Bible between complaining and discontentment and envy. Between complaining and discontentment and envy. So we could talk about a lot of stories. Let's talk about the Israelites in the desert for 40 years. Who can tell me what they are known for for 40 years? It says it over and over and over again. They did what? Murmured, grumbled, and complained over and over. I mean, I read that. I read the story as a kid, and I'm thinking, my goodness, man, what is wrong with these people? They're grumbling. God's doing this, providing manna, got the quail, got parting of the Red Seas, got the plagues, doing all these incredible things. What's wrong for these? That's what I thought as a kid. Then I grew up, and I thought, oh, now I understand, because I do the same thing in my life. 
I do the same. God does stuff for me. I forget about it quickly, and I just start complaining. It just comes so very naturally. There is this huge connection in the Scripture between grumbling and complaining and having discontentment and envy. You see that in the lives of the Israelites. They envied the nations around them. Ridiculous. They were envying the other. They, they would sometimes conquer other nations, and they would be envious of the other nations that they would conquer. It's crazy. You know how crazy this is? They were envying the Egyptians that they just defeated and left. And it says that they wanted to go back. Like they could not be happy and satisfied or content till they got back to Egypt and became slaves again. Is that stupid? Yeah, I think it's very stupid. Let's see what Benjamin Franklin says. Benjamin Franklin says, discontentment makes rich men poor. I want to add something to that. It makes rich men stupid. We do foolish things when we're discontent and we're dissatisfied. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And when we complain, it gives life and it feeds the monster of discontent inside of us. We've got to starve that monster out by stopping the complaint final must thing that we need to do we must appreciate and develop the gifts and the calling god has given each one of us we must appreciate and we must develop the gifts and the calling that god has given each one of us so first corinthians 13 15 point plan love is 15 decisions that we make determine acts of the will what precedes that what puts 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter of the Bible, what puts it in context? I'll tell you what puts it in context is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12 says at the end of it, let me show you the most excellent way. And then we hear about all what we're talking about here. So what happens in the verses right before that? The entire 12th chapter is devoted to what? Gift envy. They were envious of each other's gift. They say, you know what? I can't be happy until I look as good as this person. I can't be happy until I get their gift. Well, what about your gift? I don't care about my gift. I want their gift over there. I want their money. I want their car. I want their talents. I want their looks. I want their possessions. I'm not happy until I get it. And Paul says in 12, you need, you need to be thankful for what you do have, not what you do not have. That's the only way you're going to find contentment. There was gift envy that was going on here very strongly. Philippians 2.5 says our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. What was Jesus' attitude about his own gift and calling? Well, Jesus' gift and calling was to be the Savior of the world. Right? That's pretty big. So, I mean, would he look around to anybody else and say, gosh, I really don't like my gift. I would like to have somebody else's gift over here. You might say, well, no, he wouldn't do that. Well, wait a minute. What's that gift associated with? A gift is associated with wearing a crown of thorns. A gift is associated with being lied about, with being maligned, with being slandered, with an angry mob, with being beaten beyond recognition and hanging on a cross and dying. Do you think maybe? Is there any impetus that maybe he might not want that calling? Have you read what Jesus Christ said to his father in the garden? Was there a struggle over that? But you see... He didn't envy somebody else's gift or calling. The attitude that Jesus Christ had is the same attitude that you and I need to have. And that was he glorified the father by fulfilling the father's will. 
by saying, I have accepted this role. I have accepted my gift. I have accepted my calling. I live a full life, and I want everyone else to do the same. And what we need to do is not be upset about what we don't have, but focus on what we do have and develop it and use it for the glory of God. And until each one of us and every single person in this room has a gift and a calling, until we figure that out, until we figure that out and we work with that, and we contribute in a solid way to the kingdom of God, we will not find satisfaction. Not in God's kingdom, we won't. We must figure out our calling and our gift. Now listen, you might say, hey, John, I've been trying to figure that out. Like I spent all last week trying to figure that out. Or all last year, or whatever. I hear, I got, you, you got to know this. This is a big deal. For some people, and some people it just comes real easy. And I can't stand those people. Okay, it just comes really. Some of you are like that way. It's like, oh, yeah, I figured it out, man. It took me like three hours. I figured it out, man. I'm just happy and I'm content. And I'm just living and loving life. Let me tell you something. I mean, it took me like 15 years. And in Philippians, Philippians 4.10, we're told, Paul says to a group, he says, I know you wanted to send me this, this gift. He said, but it took you, you know, 10 years. You didn't have an opportunity. They had to wait a long time. We have a gift. It's like those CDs that we get, right? And that wrapper that, that's on them. Those wrappers aren't easy to come off, are they? Who knows how to open those wrappers? I don't even listen to some CDs because I can't get the stupid thing over it. So we have these CDs. And nobody said it's going to be easy to figure out our gift and calling. This is important. This leads to contentment and satisfaction. All hell is against you on this. All hell is against you on this. Who said it was going to be easy? It's very difficult. It's a challenge. But we need to figure it out because we won't figure out contentment until we do. We won't figure out satisfaction. We have to become content. We've got to figure out what our gifts and calling are and then focus right here on developing for the glory of the kingdom of God. Now, I want to say one other thing before I conclude, and that is this, everybody. God is not okay. He's not happy, and he's not okay with us just saying, well, I don't know what it is. I've been trying, you know, figured out. I don't have it figured out. Ah. By God's grace, he'll forgive me. And he will. But doesn't mean that God's happy with it. So Jesus tells this parable. I mean, Jesus really wants us to use the gift and calling we have to contribute to his kingdom in this world. Really, really does. This is going to be a little strong. So be patient with me here. Matthew 25. Jesus tells a parable about a man who gives... Three of his servants gives him talents. Now, I understand talents represent money. I know that, but they're symbolic of a number of things. This man gives three of his servants gifts. So one he gives a certain amount, another, 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 another. And he goes away for a long time. Then he comes back after years of being away. He says, okay, three servants, tell me, what did you do with the gifts I gave you? Did you use them? First guy steps up, says, I did. You know, I multiplied it. I worked with it, understood it. I put time and energy and effort. Boom, you know, it, it went well. And the master says, hey, that's great. Well done. Well done. Good job. Second guy, what'd you do? I did the same thing. I worked with it. I studied it. I put it to, I put it to use. I did something good with it. And he says, well done, good and faithful. So now the third guy, check this out, everybody. This is how important gifts and talent. Third guy, what'd you do? Ah. Uh, you know, it was a little difficult, and, you know, I know, you know, you're a hard taskmaster, and I wasn't sure how you reacted to what I did, so I just, I just took what you gave me, and I kind of I buried it. But here I got it back, yeah, the gift, I got it. It's, it's good, it's pristine condition. Hasn't been used. This is awesome. 
wait a minute, watch what he says back. Watch what the master says. He doesn't say, hey, you know, that wasn't the best decision that you made. Master does not say. Then say, you know what, you could have made some better choices about that. Check out what the master says, representative of God. Master says, you wicked, lazy servant. Come in here, everybody. Take this. Throw him out where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All I'm saying to you, everybody, is this. God's not okay. I mean, that parable makes it really crystal clear. You have a gift and calling. God doesn't appreciate it when you shove it back in his face for your entire lifetime and say, I'm not going to contribute to God's goodwill, to God's kingdom coming on this earth. You have it. The benefit is totally to you, actually, to figure out what that is because it leads towards contentment and satisfaction. But even beyond you, there is a world, the kingdom of God, that God wants to advance on this planet. And he's not okay when you don't use your gift for that. Three musts towards contentment. You must, you must trust in the providence of God. We must, we must stop complaining. And we must figure out our gift and calling and use it for the glory of the kingdom of God. Envy and jealousy is a terrible, miserable way to live. It rots our bones. I don't know how the scripture can get any more clear with that. It rots our bones. There's an answer. That's the good news. The answer is found in God's word. We can do something about the discontentment that is in our lives. But we have a choice to make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Boy, uh, God, wow, your word just hits me at least today, like right in the center of my forehead. Just hits me. It's so relevant, God, to my life and what I experience every single day. And it's powerful. Uh, And again, Jesus, I am just so reminded of what you said, that you have come to give life to the fullest for every single person in this room. So, Lord, wherever every single one of us are, you know, you know all of our stories, you know what we're struggling with, everything. God, help us to make those decisions that honor and please you. And God, lead us towards a life of contentment, not discontentment. Father, help us today for those of us who are in situations of hopelessness or complaints or maybe not using our gifts. Help us to turn that around today. Help us to make a resolve and to step up to the challenge of your holy word and God do something for your kingdom and to leave here differently for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that um, that you've given us your word in Jesus name. Amen.